So this morning we're looking at spiritual blindness and kosher hearts, and you'll find that in chapter 15 of the book of Matthew in our study. So you might want to go ahead and turn there. And as, we po- as we've started our thinking with this video, seeing is not always believing. All you have to do is turn on the television, read a newspaper, listen to the radio, look around, and we'll find there's a lot of people that seem to be, for a better word, uh, for a better word, blind. Now, probably no one in this room this morning is blind. I didn't see anybody come in that looked like they might be blind. But almost every one of us can be considered blind to a certain extent because we all have blind spots. All of us have blind spots. The very issues that give you heartburn may be the very issue that you deal with all the time about yourself, and so when you see it in some other people, you're quick to identify it. But we don't always see it in ourselves, do we? The screaming kid that belongs to some unattentive parent is the one that gets our attention at the grocery store, while our screaming kid is upset because they want a particular cereal that you don't want to put in the buggy. Or they're really mad because you've just put a vegetable in the buggy that they certainly don't like, and they want you to take it out because it gives them a problem. But we kind of are concentrated on what's wrong with those parents, aren't we? So we are in good company, however, this morning, because we're going to discover here that even the disciples had blind spots. Because they couldn't see who Jesus was or understand what he was up to. But as Jesus' life unfolded before them in the time they were spending with him, their understanding sharpened, and it grew day after day. And we find ourselves at a place where that's going to continue to focus in. But the scribes and Pharisees, however, the religious leaders of the day that we're going to encounter here in Matthew chapter 15, were completely blind spiritually. And it's not just that they were blind, but they were also attempting to lead other blind people. So as we look at Matthew 15 this morning, you may wonder, why does this even matter, Bill? Why does this even matter? Well, there are two reasons, two reasons why this matters. Number one, we want to first recognize false teachers and not follow their lead. And that's then as well as today. That's then and now. We get hit daily with a lot of stuff from all directions, and it's easy to be led astray or given misinformation that causes us to come to wrong conclusions. A second thing is to correct our own vision. Because if we look at ourselves and who we really are, we really have to face the idea that we need to correct our vision fairly often because of how rapidly everything seems to be readjusting around us every day. So in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat! Exclamation mark. So our first point this morning is that the spiritually blind always ask the wrong questions. They miss the point. They jump to the wrong conclusions. The spiritually blind always ask the wrong questions, the wrong, excuse me, the wrong religious questions. 
Their question to Jesus comes in verse 2, and they said, well, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? What we've seen in previous events, think about what's been going on as we've gotten to this place in our study, the book of Matthew. And most recently, in some verses not far from where we are today, there's been two huge miracles. One was the feeding of the 5,000. The other was Jesus walking on the sea, walking on the water. These two miracles would kind of scream at us, wouldn't they? They would say, this must be God. Now, the disciples are beginning to see that this, in fact, is someone very special. Because back in Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, when we find them worshiping in the boat and saying, truly, truly, you are the Son of God. And then we see these large numbers of people from around the region coming to hear him, bringing people who are sick, coming in many cases just for the chance to touch the fringe of his garment because they could be healed. Now that's what's happening in this arena as we, as we see this, these events unfolding. Jesus is a man who can walk on the water and calm the sea. More than just the disciples knew about that. Because the Sea of Galilee is not that big. Jesus was a man with such power that just touching his clothes in faith has the power to cure their disease and change them physically. Blindness, and on and on we can go, the number of diseases that were common in that area. What kinds of questions do you think these people would be asking Jesus? What kinds of questions would you, if you were there, what kind of questions would you be asking Jesus? Would you be saying something like, well, who are you? Who are you? Who, who? Or maybe you would say, uh, you'll get it in a minute. What do I have to do to follow you? What do I have to do to follow you? Who are you? What do I have to do to follow you? And that's what's going on when the scribes and Pharisees show up and ask the all-important question. Don't miss this. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands when they eat. Hmm. That's what I'd have asked Jesus. That's what I'd have wanted to know. Yeah, why? Well, anyway. Now, in verse 1, when it says from Jerusalem, don't miss that. This suggests this was probably some kind of officially appointed group that was coming. These guys didn't just, you know, all find themselves on the road headed out to where they were. They were coming from Jerusalem, so it implies they were an official group of some kind, some kind of official Pharisee group on a mission to question Jesus about this issue of hand washing. Because probably they'd sat in a room somewhere and thought, what can we get him on? There's got to be something we can get him on. And while it was a cultural and even a religious practice of the day, it was the wrong question. It was the wrong question. It would be like a reporter asking a firefighter after he's just rescued a baby from a burning building. It'd be kind of like, now, sir, I've heard that your brother eats meat on Fridays during Lent. Is that true? It'd be about the same thing. Like, what does that even matter? Why is that important? It's not. Considering all that Jesus had done and taught, and that was the best they could come up with. But that's the problem, isn't it? Related to our subject this morning. Spiritually blind people, then and now, seem to always be asking the wrong questions. Have you ever found yourself in a place where you're discussing a spiritual matter with someone, uh, perhaps sharing the gospel with them, maybe even digging through the word, and when when you get finished, they look at you and they ask a penetrating question like, 
do you really think the world was created in six days? Or do you think the flood is a true story? Or did we evolve from monkeys? Or was Jesus married to Mary Magdalene? You know, the pressing, powerful questions that people ask you after you've just spent so much of your energy trying to share the gospel with them. The scribes and Pharisees had come all the way from, the, from Jerusalem. They were on top official business. They've heard and seen Jesus in action. They know things about him. Surely they would have had more important questions. But here they come asking Jesus about his disciples and their eating habits. Remember, we're talking about spiritually blind people. The second blind spot is that spiritually blind people trust in unscriptural traditions. Spiritually blind trust in unscriptural traditions. So before we look at the next set of verses, 3 through 9, please understand Jesus knows what these gentlemen are after. He knows why they've come. They're not the germ police, and they're not here to investigate poor hygiene. They're there because this was an issue, this issue of, of ritual purity. Before these men sat down to eat, they washed their selves. They washed the cups. They washed the pots. They washed the copper vessels. They even washed the couches that they were going to sit on to dine. So spiritual a ritual purity was a big deal for the Pharisees. And these rules didn't come from Scripture, by the way. This wasn't uh, something that thou shalt do. This was a tradition that started with Aaron, his sons, and his priestly lineage that followed. Because this is before they were doing a temple service. So they went the extra mile. They did more. This was not ever meant for everybody before every meal. These were oral traditions of the elders as to the way to wash, when to wash, how to wash, or how often to wash, what to wash, and if you don't wash this way, you're offensive to God. So they had taken an original idea that wasn't a bad idea. I'm all for washing. But they had developed it into a whole ritual that everybody wanted to do. It had become such an important part of the Pharisees' teaching that it became a primary concern to them because so much of the religion of the day, what they had taken from God originally, what they had developed into the religion of the day, was based on matters just like this, rules and regulations. So how do you think Jesus will respond to this? Uh, This is the person who's been breaking one oral tradition after another. He touched leopards, lepers, almost said leopards. He touched, he touched lepers. He touched bleeding women. He touched dead bodies. I mean, these were, these were big no-nos of the day. He associated with tax collectors and Gentile sinners. He even broke bread in public without washing his hands. Oh, my. He was breaking all the biggies, wasn't he? But in verse 3, he says this, Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother 
must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you, thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And these are words from Isaiah that he's quoting here. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. This was Jesus sticking his finger in their eye, so to speak. This was a powerful indictment about them, their actions, and their motives. Now, the tradition he's talking about was known as Corban. Corban. And Corban was the practice of pledging money to the temple to be paid upon your death. Corban. Now, that sounds okay. It's kind of like putting the church or a charity in your will so that when you pass away, when you're dead, what's left goes to that entity. That's not a bad thing on the surface. But with Corbin, these funds were set aside for religious purposes, but they couldn't be used for other people. They were set aside for religious purposes. You could use them as the one giving it as long as you needed it until your death. But in your, for your parents, you couldn't do anything about that. In, the, in your parents' hour of need, the money was off limits. Unless you were, now, you'll remember there was no such thing as the IRS. There was no retirement. There was no Social Security. There were no IRAs. There was no Roth IRAs. There were no annuity programs. There was no pension. And there was surely nothing called retirement. You worked until you couldn't. But unless you were wealthy, when you got to old age... And work was over, it was up to your family to step up, or you were stuck. Family stepped up. So what was happening with Corbin was this. If you wanted to get out of helping your parents, if you wanted to secure this, these funds that you have, when they got to old age and you wouldn't have to share with them, then what you did is you declared these goods given to God. So when your parents need help, you could say, sorry, mom and dad, I'd love to help you, but all this money I have is Corbin. I can use it for myself, but whatever's left over is going to God. You understand, of course. Sorry, dad. Sorry, mom. Oh, Jesus, man, and Jesus understood, and he, he said this didn't look too good. He said Corbin broke the law of love. He said this broke the law of love regarding the love of God, the love of your neighbor, and honoring your father and mother. He's suggesting here that Corbin killed compassion. So, good luck, Mom and Dad. As helpless as you may be, as feeble as you've gotten to, I figured out a way not to spend my money on you. So that's the tradition he's calling into play here. Someone spiritually blind couldn't see this. They would practice it and they would teach others to practice it. And he's saying, scribes and Pharisees, you like this stuff and you've even taught it to them. The spiritually blind trust in unscriptural traditions and that's dangerous because it harms people. 
and it affects the ones who practice it. Now, it's not that even though Jesus did go after a lot of traditions, it's not that he was against tradition because he was, he was speaking against traditions that were harmful. Society functions, society is held together by traditions that are in place. Traditions are not in themselves a negative thing. For example, our church has traditions. We meet before worship on Sunday mornings and have a a period that we call growth groups or our Bible study time. We provide that for adults. We provide that for students, for children, and for preschoolers. We gather and we sing hymns, uh, often written by dead Englishmen, and we don't see a problem with that. That works pretty well. And then we sing spiritual songs that are composed by people living today, men and women that have composed those. And those work pretty well for our worship to God. We take an offering. And some of you will get real nervous when I say this. But the offering time, the way we do it, is not necessarily in holy writ the way we should take an offering. But this is the way we take our offerings. And it's a good thing. It works for us. We have Christmas Eve service. And we celebrate Easter on a certain day. These are all traditions that are found in a, that we do in addition, but not found necessarily specifically outlined in Scripture, such as doing the Lord's Supper or believer's baptism. But they help under, undergird, they help support God's Word. They help support us as traditions that work in our situation. It doesn't void the word of God. It doesn't make the God lesser. So traditions can uplift. Traditions can be a good thing. Jesus is challenging the enthronement of traditions that sought to supersede God's word. There's a very large Christian religion in our world that we know as the Catholic Church. And they believe in the authority of three different areas. One of those being the Word of God, yes. But in some cases, church tradition can supersede or override what God's Word says. There's, an, there's other groups, and one of those would be like the Mormons. They have a book called the Book of Mormon, written by a fellow by the name of Joseph Smith. And besides the Bible, there's three different writings that the, book, that the church of Latter-day Saints hold up as authority. So you've got four different ones, and any of those can supersede what God's Word says. In fact, Joseph Smith was once quoted as saying that the Book of Mormon is the most correct of any book on earth. That would seem to say to me that God's Word takes a second spot or a third spot to that particular writing. So the point being that nothing should supersede God's Word. Now, we don't worship the book, but the book is our traveling instructions. The book is what we know to be the Word of God. We worship God, and he's provided for us this great volume that has come together for our good. And we can't put anything ahead of that. So we've got the first blind spot that these fellows had is that the spiritually blind ask the wrong religious questions. Second blind spot is that the spiritually blind trust in unscriptural traditions. The spiritually blind underestimate 
as Jeremiah said, how dis, dis, desperately wicked the human heart is. Or Jesus said, how unclean it is. The human heart is capable of really some terrible things, isn't it, on our own? But the third blind spot this morning is that the spiritually blind don't see that spiritual corruption is a matter of the heart. Spiritual corruption is the matter of the heart. So we continue on in verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Pause just here a moment. In this culture, the Pharisees were very important. The Pharisees' word was the interpretation of what God wanted. The, they were so held in high esteem. So the, the disciples were a little nervous here. They're like, man, can we really do this? They're kind of upset. All right, verse 13, he replied, and then Jesus loved this. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. I, I got to think Jesus smiled a little bit. He was either really irritated or he probably laughed out loud. He said, are you still so dull? Are you duh? What, don't you get it? Jesus asked him, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart, some evil thoughts, or excuse me, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean, but eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. So Jesus is teaching here there are two places to find spiritual purity or impurity, the heart and the mouth. Now, he doesn't spend time talk right here talking about the good things like sympathy, kindness, artistry, creativity, and love. That, those things come from the human heart as well. But he's identifying the bad things. He's identifying evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. He uses the second half of the Ten Commandments, which are God's perfect law, and uses it as a spotlight onto the human heart. Jesus is going straight to the problem. He's telling them and us about the human heart. Because, folks, our greatest need is changed hearts. Transform lives. Our greatest need is changed hearts. How do you know what's in your heart? Take a look at what comes out of your mouth. In verse 18, but the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. I think most of us know that how you talk to or about your spouse tells you and everyone else around you about the quality of your marriage. Or about father to son. Or the relationship of student to teacher or boss and employee, or pastor congregation, all these relationships, the evidence is there by how we talk about each other, isn't it? The same is true of every relationship, including our relationship 
with God. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 36 and 37, he said, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every word they have spoken. Now that alone should get us all on our faces this morning. Literally. The more I read that this week, the shakier I got. Let me say that again. But I tell you that, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. See, our words really do speak volumes. They really are the heart, the window of our heart. So how clean is your heart? The evidence is in how clean is your tongue. We are convicted by our words. Swearing, gossiping, unholy anger, unjust criticism convicts us all. Shines a light on us in a way that makes us squirm just a little bit. I think we might need to lay our stones down this morning and cover our mouths as we remember the words of Isaiah when he said, we are a people of unclean lips. That convicts me. Jesus' point is that washing our, our hands before we eat doesn't make us right on the inside. Through the Holy Spirit, we need Jesus to, to give us, as it says in Psalm 51, 17, broken and contrite hearts. And I, I wanted to make sure you had some of these in your list, on your, in your outline this morning. Circumcised hearts, Romans 2, 29. Clean hearts, Hebrews 22. Pure hearts, 1 Peter 1, 22. New hearts, Ezekiel 36, 26. Sincere hearts, Ephesians 6, 5. So that we might believe from the heart, Ephesians 3, 17. And obey from the heart, Deuteronomy eleven thirteen. So we might have Christ dwell in our hearts through faith, Ephesians three seventeen. Because on our own, the human heart is pretty filthy. It is not a clean thing. But Christ, with his righteousness, his purity, his clean hands, and heart dwelling in us through faith, changes everything. What cured my sin-diseased heart was faith. Faith in Jesus, faith in him crucified, dying on the cross for everything we've done. The scribes and Pharisees were blind to this. They had a blind spot where Jesus was concerned as well as to their own sin. That's why they asked the wrong question. That's why they trusted in unscriptural traditions. That's why they thought that purity was just on the outside. But Jesus was trying to teach them, as he is trying to teach me, and as he is trying to teach you this morning, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, that the Father is seeking true worshipers, and that only the pure in heart shall see God. Because what matters before God is not clean hands or kosher food, but a purified heart. It's not how we look on the outside that matters the most. So the question for me this morning, the question for you this morning How's your heart? How's your heart? 
How's your mouth? How's your sight? Are you seeing as you should see? Are you still or are you still blind? If you look right up there in the middle of that eye, it's a reminder of where the truth lies. It's in the cross this morning. So how's your heart? How are the blind spots? Are they really big? Are we, are we so focused on what somebody else says or does that we ignore what we say or do? Are we so concerned with everything else but miss the things we stumble over and the mistakes we make? How is our heart this morning? There are some of you in this room this morning that have never allowed Christ to come in and dwell in you and change your life. So we suggest to you weekly around here that if you've not found a relationship with Jesus Christ, we'd love to help you find that. We'd love to help you find that right now. We'd like the opportunity to share that with you. And in a moment, we have a thing we call an invitation where we invite you to come forward and talk about that and pray about that and consider how you can accept Jesus Christ into your heart and life. For others of you here this morning, the question is, where are the blind spots? And are you going to walk out of this room having not dealt with them this morning? For as we sing an invitation song in just, in just a few minutes... Will you really consider it or will it just be a distraction so you don't have to consider the blind spots this morning? What are the things we've come to think of that are so important that we've let them supersede God's word? And are we so busy trying to clean up the outside that we're not dealing with the inside where it matters? What's going on in your life this morning that needs to be dealt with? Because if we've truly worshipped, then our hearts are open and God has been speaking to you through his Holy Spirit. And so during this invitation time, we offer you a few moments to consider all this. Is he really in charge with you? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a grateful people this morning. We want our lives to matter. We as Christians want to be the kind of followers that you want. We want to uh, give ourselves to you. And yet all of that can be very hard. That can be very difficult, challenging for us. Because our will is so strong to do it our way. And I pray, Father, that this morning your Holy Spirit will help us move that stuff out of the way so that we can get a fresh vision for you, a fresh vision for our lives, 
and how we can serve you better and be, be more like your people that you want us to be. For some, Father, this could be the moment that we finally say yes to you and allow you in. And I pray that the walls could come down and your Holy Spirit could have its will and way, his will and way in this place. And some could go from here with a fresh new road to travel. For those of us that are hung up on what we have done or haven't done or should do or need to do, that this morning we just open our lives and you teach us something fresh. For your word is powerful. And sometimes you're active and busy and you're touching people and we see miraculous things. And then sometimes your word brings us to a place like this morning where you're just pointing out the things we need to consider. No real action for the moment, just content. How can we be better? And I pray that your will would be here this morning and that we would open our lives to you to walk closer with you. So, Father, have your will for the next few moments. We're praying for changed hearts. Transform lives. Because we love you and we want more. We want to walk closer with you. We thank you for what you're about to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We'll give you the opportunity to come. I'll be here. Chad will be here. We'd love to pray with you about whatever's going on in your life. But this is your time. Please use it.